Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Before we start, a very quick program note. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving folks. Just search for the show's name. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line to tell us what you like or hate on the show at theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is, it turns out that for a long time, ancient Jews didn't really have a concept of an evil enemy of God, nor of an afterlife, per se. But as the tribes of Israel encountered Persian people over the centuries, some ideas from the Zoroastrian religion started to rub off on their own homegrown monotheism. See, in the oldest books of the Bible, like Job, which scholars believe predates even Genesis. The whole idea is that God lets bad shit happen to people, and who are you to question him, because essentially... Good evening, I'm Chubby Chase. Yeah, except, you know, sub God in for Chevy. Job is eventually blessed simply because he never gives up and curses God, even after said God allows Satan to ruin his life with a litany of tribulations. The death of his children and livestock, horrible plagues, etc. So this was the first biblical understanding of why God lets bad things happen. Later on, when the kingdom of Israel had conquered what they considered the promised land, they ended up rather surprised when they, in turn, were conquered by a variety of other neighboring kingdoms. This was surprising because they were supposed to have a special covenant with God, and therefore should have been doing all the conquering and subjugating, not vice versa. Taking over and enslaving neighboring kingdoms was essentially how peoples said hello to each other in the ancient Near East. The explanation for these turns of events, as explained in detail by numerous Old Testament prophets, was that the chosen people weren't keeping up their end of the covenant, and therefore God had turned his blessings away from them until they repented their evil ways. Unfortunately for this line of thinking, even after the Jewish people were being super careful about following the commandments and worshiping God in the prescribed manner, they ended up getting the short end of the stick, which was particularly painful when that stick was being swung at them by the biggest, baddest earthly power on the block, the Roman Empire. Rome first conquered Israel back in 63 BCE and established a puppet kingdom. The dynasty of King Herod the Great, the much-loathed figure whose name has been annually uncomprehendingly recited in nativity stories by confused Christmas page narrating seven-year-olds since time immemorial. 
But by the time of Jesus' adulthood, the Romans had done away with the client king and had taken direct control of their Israeli province, which was led by a take-no-shit or prisoners, crucify them all and let Zeus sort them out style, Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. His job was to collect the expected taxes and torture to death anyone who looked at him funny. From what we can tell, he really enjoyed his job. See, for example, noted bestsellers Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's where that Zoroastrian influence came in. By the 2nd century BCE, the authors of some of the last books of the Jewish or Old Testament Bible to be written, for example, the very apocalyptic book of Daniel, incorporated a very Zarathustra-friendly vision of God returning to earth to set up his kingdom, which replaced traditional Jewish prophecies in which kings of Israel were eventually, through the grace of God, to be given dominion over the whole earth. But then by Jesus' time, many contemporary Jews, including the Essenes, a strict religious sect whose writings are preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls, had adopted the view that the world was so fucked up specifically because of an evil force. An adapted version of the Satan, who is a sort of prosecuting attorney figure in the Book of Job, now retransfigured by the Zoroastrian influence into a very powerful agent of chaos, whom God is currently allowing to run roughshod over the world. But don't worry, the Essenes and others insisted. The time was coming, very soon, when the Lord would return from heaven, his army led by his chosen one, the Messiah, who would set up a perfect kingdom on earth, absolutely wreck unbelievers like the Romans, and eventually judge all humans, living and dead, and either invite them to join him in paradise, or destroy them utterly by fire. This, as near as most mainstream scholars can tell, is the worldview that the actual historical Jesus subscribed to. His mission, again according to mainstream scholarship, was not to create a new religion, but rather to teach people a refined version 2.0 of the existing Jewish faith, so that many more could be saved when the Day of Judgment came, presumably like about six months from when he was speaking. We're not going to get into all of the ins and outs of how these scholars have come to this consensus, but the main reason we went through all of that stuff was so that I could introduce the real object of our current discussion, the Book of Revelation. Jesuit, if you don't pay all of that Zoroastrian shit off real fast, that shock color is going back on immediately. No, I swear, I have a real point here, Dana, which is this. What the Essenes, the historical Jesus, and the author of the last book of the Bible had in common was they all expected God to intervene in human affairs, rewarding the just and punishing the wicked, like any day now. This is thanks in large part to the influence that Zoroastrianism had had on Jewish religious practice over the preceding centuries. or. To put it another way, what each of them shared was a belief that there's no way Christians and Jews would still be waiting for the end of the world 2,000 plus years later. Jesus is quoted as saying stuff that obviously supports the preceding thesis. Take, for example, this quote from Matthew 24:34. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All these things meaning return of the Lord in judgment to set up his earthly kingdom. Which, like didn't happen within those Aramaic Jews' maximum 60-ish year lifespan, or like in the 2,000 years since, which means that Christian apologists have spent like two millennia figuring out ways to explain away this obviously failed prophecy. My favorite of these is one legend I vaguely recall a quite fundamentalist fellow high school student explaining to my skeptical ass during my very southern secondary education, the point of which was that somewhere in a secret holy cave a guy who was alive at the time Jesus said those words was still alive, just waiting for Christ's return, and therefore the quote was still accurate. 
Again, Jesuit, the southern states of your birth sound like a mighty strange place. No argument here, unicorn. But from the letters of Paul, arguably the most influential follower of Christ in history, to the author of the book of Revelation, to the author of the Gospel of Mark, it's very clear these guys were part of the general apocalyptic fervor that was sweeping Israel at the time. The Lord was coming, Jesus and the rest of them said, and it's going to happen while some of you are still above ground. For that reason, it's sensible to think that the first couple generations of Christians were living their lives in anticipation that those lives might abruptly go away within, like, the next fiscal quarter. Paul clearly didn't think people should get married, for example, because Jesus didn't take a wife and his followers should follow his example. But as the years wore on, Paul recognized that people were going to want to get their freak on, and if he didn't allow for it, he was going to have trouble keeping the faith growing. So eventually, he allowed marriage for the horniest faithful via his famous admonition, Better to marry than to burn. Returning to John Michael Greer's book, Apocalypse, A History of the End of Time, we find that by the time a full-on Jewish rebellion against Roman rule kicked off in 66 CE, three decades after Christ's crucifixion and the inception of Christianity, there were plenty of Jews who were expecting the arrival of a Messiah figure who would lead the armies of the chosen people to defeat Rome. What they got instead was a crushing response from the empire, which by the year 70 had retaken all of the rebellious region, captured Jerusalem, slaughtered everybody who opposed them, and, just to ensure everyone knew who was boss, destroyed the Second Temple. This was a crushing humiliation to the Jewish people in their religion, as of course Rome intended. Later, Jewish rebel-turned-loyal Roman historian Josephus estimated more than a million Jews may have perished in the fighting. Though, as always, ancient historians' estimates are questionable at best. While this led those who remained adherents of the original faith to adapt a strong and resilient culture that has thankfully survived the many, many attempts the world has made to destroy it, it put the nascent Christians, with their origins in Jewish religious practice and the centrality of Jesus' death at the hands of Rome, in kind of a weird space there for a while. There were those who, like the author of the Gospel of John, would eventually decide that Rome was not the enemy, that Jews were, and therefore would change the story of the crucifixion to the point that Pontius Pilate, whom historians know as a callous official with basically no concern for the traditions or lives of the people he governed. A man who would order a dozen crucifixions before breakfast, essentially. Yeah, that asshole. By the time John's written, late in the first century CE, Pilate repeatedly claims that he can't find any fault with this Jesus guy, and if the Jewish people want him dead, that's their problem thus lessening the responsibility Rome had for the death of the Savior in the first place, and increasing the culpability of the Jews. For more discussion of the origins of Christian anti-Semitism, consult our pre-panic episodes earlier in this series. These innovations, which reflect Christians focusing not on the end of the world, but rather on convincing their Roman neighbors to join their new faith, led to a downplaying of the historic Jesus' message of impending apocalypse in favor of making Jesus seem less like the anointed Messiah sent by God to the Jewish people, and more like an all-knowing incarnation of God in the flesh. This is not the message of the other three Gospels, by the way. Don't worry, we're not going to get bogged down in low-high Christological evolution over the course of the Gospels. Though as much as I plead, he won't guarantee he's not going to do that sometimes in the future, so you've been warned. But we are going to spend some time going over the last book of the New Testament, which definitely bucked this overall trend. It's also the one that has the most Zoroastrian apocalypse in its veins. It's the most controversial and one of the most influential books in the whole Bible, 
and is particularly applicable as we talk about the obsession that 90s cultures had with the idea of the end of the world happening in the year 2000, a mantle of apocalyptic fervor that QAnon has taken up in the years since. Our guides in discussing the Book of Revelation include two excellent books, A History of the End of the World by Jonathan Kirsch and the aforementioned Apocalypse by John Michael Greer. But our very favoritist source is yet another brain-exploding lecture from super-genius Bible scholar Bart Ehrman. Given the amount of times Jesuit has quoted him, you're surely either loved by now or you're just a glutton for punishment. To kick things off, let's examine the basics of the book and how it came to be with Dr. Ehrman. We have a pretty good idea when and where this, not where this book was written, but well, pretty good idea. It's written by somebody named John. He doesn't claim to be one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, he sense that he's not. He's on the island of Patmos which is a little island off the uh, west coast of Turkey that you can still visit today. In fact, if you're a tourist, you'll go there and you'll see the place where John allegedly had these visions and wrote this book. It's almost certain that John is writing at the end of the first century, in the 90s, 95 or so. And so that would be maybe 65, 70 years after Jesus' ministry, and so much later than Jesus. He's writing in Greek, and so he is a Greek-speaking Christian uh, living seven decades or so after Jesus' ministry. He has a number of visions, and his book records the visions. And so, what I would like Kirsch to elaborates from this bare bones description, suggesting that scholars believe the guy named John who authored the book was probably born in Judea, which means he may have actually witnessed the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 CE. Certainly, he hates the Romans so much it suggests a personal, in addition to a theological, beef. Most scholars believe he wasn't a native Greek speaker. They have characterized the Greek in which the book's written as clunky and awkward. Though interestingly, Kirsch quotes one scholar suggesting John may have spoken perfectly good Greek, but deliberately semiticized it to protest the colonized culture of the Roman world. The analogy would be a contemporary African-American deliberately using black English among white people as a sort of cultural badge of honor. The author probably spent his days as an itinerant prophet wandering through Asia Minor. That is, mostly modern-day Turkey preaching his very strict gospel and sharing his evocative, prophetic visions. So what about his book? Let's start with the interesting fact that, because the author claimed that he simply dictated the words revealed to him by Jesus, some Christians have called Revelation the only book of the Bible authored by Christ. Revelation is also notable for having no interest, or potentially no knowledge of, the important events of Christ's life as described in the gospel accounts. Nor does he talk about such Christian cornerstones as baptism, communion, or the Trinity. On the other hand, only it and Matthew among the books of the New Testament seem so deeply engaged with the Hebrew Bible. Kirsch counts 14 references to Jesus in the book, compared to 518 references to the Old Testament. And in spite of the fact that the author ends up calling Jews who don't convert during the final judgment of God the synagogue of Satan, thus setting up a whole bunch of anti-Semitism in the future, The book is notable in that it doesn't condemn all Jews, or Jewishness itself, the way other Gospels seem to. Indeed, John refers to himself and his followers in the text as authentic Jews. Okay, so why are there so many different interpretations of this visionary book? Well, as Dr. Ehrman notes, part of the problem is that people keep attempting to read it as if it depicts a sequential series of events, when that's not what it's aiming to do at all. You cannot line up the events in the book of Revelation sequentially and have a chronological, linear account of what's going to happen. The world's ended here at the end of chapter 6 with the sixth seal, but it keeps on going. 
Why? Because these are not chronological descriptions. This will happen and that and that and that. They are disasters that happen over and over and over again, not because the same disaster is going to happen over and over, but because it's emphasizing, it's making emphatic that this is really going to happen. And so it's repetition for effect, not to set out a linear sequence of what's going to happen. When he breaks the seventh seal, we're introduced to seven angels. We have seven trumpets. Each one blows a trumpet. And every time the trumpet happens, uh, people get killed and, and disasters happen and wars and earthquakes and, and just horrible things are happening all over the earth. The seventh trumpet blows and it introduced seven angels who are carrying bowls of God's wrath. And one by one, they pour over these bowls on the earth and disasters are taking place everywhere. It's just, it's crazy. Uh, and it goes like that. Well, okay, but if we're not supposed to see this as a literal chronology of future events, then what is it? To understand that, we need to adopt the right mindset before we start reading. My interpretation is going to be based on the idea, that's a very common idea among historians and scholars, that when somebody in the ancient world was writing a book, they were writing it for their own audience and not for some other audience. So that if you want to understand what their audience understood, meaning you want to have some understanding of what the author might have had in mind, it really helps to know what they would make of it in their, in their own world. So what did John want his audience to understand about this book? Now we're talking. Let's listen as Dr. Ehrman unpacks the straightforward interpretation of one of the most important symbols in the book, the Whore of Babylon. real-world image did John expect his readers to see when he described this harlot, drunk on the blood of the saints and with the witnesses of Jesus? Who is she, though? The woman you saw, the whore of Babylon, is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now, of course, futuristic people today telling prophecies come up with explanations about who this is representing. What if we put it in the author's own historical context and try to understand it by taking the keys that are provided by the text itself? This whore is called Babylon. Babylon was a city. In the Old Testament, Babylon is the city that destroyed Israel and destroyed the temple. So the woman is called to the name, so she's a city. She is seated on this beast with seven heads, and the seven heads represent seven hills. That's all most people need to figure out who the author living in the first century Roman Empire is talking about. What was the city built on seven hills? Rome. This whore is fabulously wealthy with purple, scarlet, gold, jewels, and pearls. Rome was by far the richest city in the world at the time. It was a corrupting influence in all the nations of earth with whom she commits fornication, meaning they participate with her in her foul activities and also in order also to get rich. Rome is responsible for the persecutions of Christians. They are, it's drunk. Rome is drunk with the blood of the saints and uh, Jesus' witnesses. Nero engaged in bloody executions of Christians. And in case the reader didn't get yet who this person is, the angel then comes out and says, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. He's talking to somebody in the first century who in the Roman Empire was ruling over the kings of the earth, the city of Rome. The enemy of God, Babylon, in this book, who has to be destroyed, is the city of Rome and the Roman Empire. Well, that seems pretty unambiguous. But what about the beast, the one with the 666 number, who's also often called the Antichrist? Who is this beast? This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a person. Its number is 666. And I put a little footnote here that you'll find in your Bibles. Some ancient manuscripts, instead of saying 666, 666, say 616, 
what does this mean? What is 666? We've already seen that Rome and its rulers are the enemies of God. But the beast is 666? So there have been theories, theory after theory after theory in the modern world. In the Second World War, it was Mussolini, or some people thought Hitler. Later, people thought that it was uh, Saddam Hussein. There was a book written when I was in college arguing that it was Henry Kissinger. What's going on here? The author tells us that it's the number of a person. In ancient languages, they did not have a separate numeric from an alphabetical system. The alphabet was the same as the numbers. Say you're writing in Hebrew. Aleph is the first Hebrew letter. Put a little tick above it. Now it doesn't represent the letter Aleph. It represents the number one. Uh, Beit is two. Gimel, three, etc. In Greek, it'd be alpha, beta, gamma. When you get to 10, then the next one is 20, then 30, then 40. When you get to 100, then it's 100, 200, 300, which means every word has a numerical value because you can just add up the numbers that the letters represent. Okay. The first Roman persecutor of Christians was Caesar Nero. If you write Caesar Nero in Hebrew letters, it adds up to 666. It's interesting that you can spell Caesar Nero two ways. You could either say the Kaiser Neron with an N on the end or Kaiser Nero without an N on the end. The N in Hebrew is worth 50. So that if you spell it without the 50, it's 616. You spell it with it, it's 666. This is talking about Nero. The enemy, the beast, is the Roman Empire and Nero. So, given this clear, obvious interpretation, John prophesied that Jesus would return in glory and the Roman Empire would fall. Soon. Which either makes this a huge failed prophecy, or perhaps the most accurate prediction in history, depending on your perspective. Conveniently, our two authors disagree on precisely this point. First, Kirsch lays out the obvious. The world didn't end, so John was a failed prophet. He would, in fact, be heartbroken to know the world was still chugging along two millennia later. Quote, Revelation is the history of the end of the world and the history of a world that refused to end. Greer sees things very differently. Quote, John's vision counts as one of the most spectacularly successful prophecies on record. At a time when nobody in his right mind imagined the fall of Rome's mighty empire and the rise to power of the despised and marginal sect of Christianity, he predicted both, along with a flurry of details that make sense in the context of the centuries that followed his time. Thus, it's all the more telling that only a small minority of Christians have ever accepted what has been called a preterist interpretation of the prophecies of Jesus and John. That is, the recognition that they have already come true. Ooh, preterism. We could do a whole subsection on that. Preterists are... Jesuit. Shock collar. No, 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 no. I'll be good. Regardless, all of our experts speak as one in agreement that this book, Revelation, is quite clearly a prophecy about the fall of Rome and the return and victory of Christ. And yet, its staying power is almost entirely based on people dismissing that premise. For all of its technicolor imagery and imaginative leaps, Revelation is very clear about its targets, which Kirsch notes has led to the deeply ironic situation in which every believer who has made use of the text in the subsequent thousand years as a prophetic document has had to assume that the original writer was too dumb to understand the visions he himself was recording. Sure, this dumbass thought he was talking about Nero and Rome. What the fuck does he know? The book's initial popularity among the faithful had to do with the aforementioned fact that the world didn't end when Jesus promised, that is, within the lifetimes of his contemporary followers. This meant the early church needed a new vision to anchor the future of the religion. Revelation stepped into that breach. It had plenty of competition, of course. 
It was, according to our early sources, only one of dozens of apocalypses circulating during the first Christian century. How did Jews in religious authority feel about this situation, with apocalypses popping up everywhere? Kirsch gives us this quote from the Talmud. The day the temple was destroyed, prophecy was taken from prophets and given to fools and children. But even as the New Testament canon started coming together over the next several centuries, ecclesiastical Christian authorities disagreed about whether revelation should be a part of it. After all, again quoting Kirsch, Once a Christian emperor seated himself on the imperial throne of pagan Rome in the early 4th century, all the bitter rhetoric of revelation, so clearly aimed at the power and glory of the Roman Empire, was suddenly an embarrassment that needed to be explained away. Remember, the rest of the New Testament doesn't have such a clear anti-Roman stance. Indeed, in the Gospels, Jesus tells followers to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. While holding up a Roman coin, which arguably makes him an irretrievable sinner in the eyes of the author of Revelation, weirdly. The author of Revelation is most notable for how viscerally he expresses his hatreds, and how many hatreds there are. It's not just the Roman Empire and the Emperor, but rival prophets and preachers, Christians who aren't zealous enough for his tastes, Jews who haven't converted to Christianity, anybody who enjoys food, sex, or any other pleasure, and anyone who buys or sells anything. So, like, everybody? Pretty close. Quote, Above all, the moral calculus of revelation, the demonization of one's enemies, the sanctification of revenge-taking, and the notion that history must end in catastrophe, can be detected in some of the worst atrocities and excesses of every age, including our own. The simple act of accepting a Roman coin may have been what he meant by the mark of the beast, meaning any commerce with Rome, which essentially at the time meant all commerce, was an unpardonable sin to the author. And he's just as harsh on fellow preachers. If they don't agree with him and meet his impossible standards, they're no better than witches. This total lack of compromise has made his book a huge hit with the self-righteous of every age since. It was also especially popular over the centuries with people who felt they had little control over their often miserable fates. Kirsch notes that for medieval lives were one crisis after another, Revelation could be an inspiring or even an intoxicating text. Unfortunately, though, unlike every other book in the New Testament, this one doesn't have a single thing to say about how to live a good and righteous life in the world as you find it. It only wants to talk about how the enemies of Jesus are going to get smushed in the world to come. For 2,000 years, this book has been wielded as a cudgel against the established church by, in Kirsch's phrase, religious eccentrics who see their own time as the end of time. But the church still kept it in the Bible because it provided a sort of capstone to the New Testament. This way, the whole thing starts with Jesus' birth and ends with a vision of his eternal kingdom. St. Augustine, who has always represented the majesty and authority of the church in his writing, established back in the 4th century that a good Christian should read Revelation as a spiritual allegory rather than an account of actual physical things that are going to happen in the future. This admonition has had, let's say, limited effectiveness. Of course, what we're most interested in here is the very American lead-up to the 1990s millennium freakout and the eschatology. Again, that is, the end-of-the-world style thinking that continues to animate with us or with the devil groups like QAnon. Of course, our American homegrown apocalypticists have always been big fans of Revelation. William Miller's assured Revelation-based prophecies roiled the mid-19th American century with the belief that the world would end sometime around 1843. And even after he and his followers blew through a number of such dates, 
his acolyte still ended up founding a lasting institution, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Miller, much like future prophets, to the end of his life, remained convinced the world would end shortly, in spite of his many predictions, manifest failure. Later, in the 19th century, Dwight L. Moody was a promoter of the then-recent theological innovation of premillennialism, the view that is still very popular among American fundamentalists to this day, and which suggests that those who follow Christ will be raptured into the air prior to a terrible time known as the Tribulation. After this Tribulation, Christ will reign on earth for a thousand years, and then apparently the kingdom will convert from an earthly one to a heavenly one. Why a thousand years? Because Revelation mentions a thousand years, and these people are trying to desperately square this clearly earthly Revelation kingdom with the well-established Christian theology that Jesus' kingdom will, in fact, be eternal in heaven. Don't question the motivated reasoning. There are, of course, post-millennialists, but they're a smaller group, and less influential. Moody was one of those people who is absolutely convinced, in the face of all evidence, that the world keeps getting worse. Because in his reading, God says, in the Bible, that the world is going to keep getting worse. You hear that? Billions of people saved from childhood diseases, starvation, and grinding poverty by human effort and technological innovation? And all of that shit is meaningless because Dwight Moody's reading of a very strange book says so? Charles Taze Russell predicted in 1874 that the end of the world would come in 1914, meaning that the start of World War I in that very same year made him seem pretty darn prophetic to many folks who heard his message. Of course, the diehards only doubled down when that prediction and Taze's many subsequent predictions didn't come to pass, and their descendants are to this day spreading the word about the imminent return of God's kingdom by knocking on your doors and asking you to read The Watchtower. Which brings us to more modern purveyors of revelation-based predictions. Because the world hasn't ended, Kirsch writes, pin the tail on the Antichrist has continued to be a popular pastime among the book's most fervent readers. You couldn't wait to quote that, could you? Let's hear what Dr. Ehrman has to say about these fear merchants. Every time somebody uh, writes one of these books, people get excited, but the end doesn't come. <laughs> uh, the clock keeps ticking, as we all noticed. These all are doomed predictions of doom, and all of them have three things in common. One is, all of these books have all made their authors incredibly wealthy. <laughs> Moreover, they've all been inconvertibly wrong. <laughs> and third, they are inevitably based on the book of Revelation, largely based on the book of Revelation. And so my question is, what is the problem here? Is it that somebody's just like making a minor miscalculation? There are lots of these books being published still today by conservative evangelicals, and especially by fundamentalist Christians who assure us they're just reading the book of Revelation. And they always assure us that the people who previously got this wrong is because they made a miscalculation. They misread this verse. What the verse really means is, and then they get and say, so they were all wrong. They shouldn't have done that. But, you know, this is what's really going to happen. That happens time and time again. My thesis in this talk is that the reason these predictions have always been wrong is not because there was a minor miscalculation someplace. It's because the entire method of interpreting the book of Revelation is wrong. It is not what the book of Revelation is all about. The book of Revelation is not predicting what's going to happen in our near future. This is the view of historians generally who approach the, uh, the New Testament from a historical point of view. It is not as sensational, as scintillating, uh, as uh, thinking, you know, it's going to come next Thursday, but it appears to be the more, uh, more responsible way of approaching the book of Revelation. Revelation. 